Hey friends, welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. My name's Matt. We're so glad you're tracking with us. Jesus Collective is a new relational network of churches and leaders with a vision to unite, amplify, and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up all over the place. During this pilot season, we're experimenting with different ways to build relationships with people in this movement, to put language to what Jesus-centered means, and to have meaningful and honest equipping conversations about the issues and opportunities facing our churches in this increasingly post-Christian context we find ourselves in. So, this podcast is one of those tools. You might find a number of different types of conversation formats shared here, and we hope you find it meaningful and engaging. You can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find information about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff, at our microsite at JesusCollective.com, or you can find us on social media. And hey, we love hearing feedback and ideas and just meeting new Jesus-y people, so you can always reach out by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. This is a really important conversation. So I just want to welcome all of you who are new. If this is your first time being in the in a Jesus Collective podcast or engagement, welcome. Uh, if you are tuning in on the podcast and listening uh, kind of after the fact, welcome. If you are a part of Jesus Collective community and you've been weaving in and out and being connected in different ways, welcome. Uh, this conversation is really important, and we have friends here from U.S. and friends from Canada who've been engaged in this uh, ongoing conversation for quite some time. Uh, so Shauna and Hank and Denley have been engaged in the Jesus Collective conversation, um, and they have also been uh, teachers and spokespersons for racial inequality or highlighting racial inequality in the church and beyond, and they have a track record of this being a, a, a part of their ministry of helping the church to wake up in different ways. Um, and so I just want to pause before we get into the conversation and just say that this isn't happening from a detached or an observant posture, that we are, we're not here to just uh, learn intellectually uh, and this is not a bandwagon moment for us in Jesus Collective. We've, we've been committed from the beginning of this conversation, the Jesus Collective conversation, of our need for racial and cultural diversity within this, this community. Uh, and we've named that we have a long ways to go, and we are committed to the full body of Christ. And, and as we've watched in the last couple of weeks, we've, we, we, like you, have been appalled. We've been grieved. We've been heartbroken. We've been deeply moved uh, by what we all have experienced watching the tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so we're here today to talk as a, a community about this moment. What is the Spirit of Jesus asking each of us in this moment? And what is He asking of the communities that we serve and lead? What is the Spirit of Jesus saying to us in this time? What does love require of us? In this time, what do we need to be paying attention to? Or we risk, like the Pharisees, of having God right in front of us, speaking to us, and us having missed out on God's word to us. And so we're here to pay attention and we're here to learn and we're here to apply what we've learned. Uh, so, as people who put Jesus at the center of every conversation, we're not doing this uh, to somehow shy away from difficult conversations because Jesus is in the middle we can have very difficult conversations. And it's our prayer that we would be disturbed by Jesus if that's what we need. 
And for others, it's our prayer that this conversation provides hope uh, that, and it provides some comfort and some, some healing even. We believe that putting Jesus at the center changes this conversation in our polarized world. And it doesn't add to the polarization. When Jesus is in the center, he pulls us together. And that's our hope that even in our differences, that somehow we can stay together and stay united in unity. And then the last thing I'll say about this conversation is this is to equip you, uh, the leader. So we're assuming that, that you are here with a hungry heart to learn and to be equipped to lead the people that you serve forward in this way. Uh, we know that it's never been more difficult and complicated to lead, in, in, let alone in leading in a global pandemic. Uh, and we are leading in post-Christian context, and we're leading in a polarized world. And so our uh, heart is to cheer you on and to equip you with conversations and uh, with the words and the metaphors and the guidance and the wisdom that you need to move forward in your context. So in the Q&A, we invite you to bring your challenges to the conversation and, um, and really lean in with what are you facing and what wisdom do you need to move forward where you are. And then uh, I want to uh, read Amos 5 from the message. My friend and brother, Keith Smith, is a pastor in Ohio. He shared this passage uh, as it's been lodged in his heart, spe- especially in the last couple of weeks. And so we stand in solidarity with Keith as a, uh, a black pastor in a, in a white community. Uh, and we stand in solidarity with the word of God, uh, as it says in Amos 5, in the message, verse 21. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. I want oceans of it. I want fairness. I want rivers of it. That's what I want. This is that verse, that famous verse, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. May this be our heart together as we have this conversation. And I'll throw to my colleague, Angela Lamb. Amen. Oh, good morning. Uh, I'm Angela. I am part of Jesus Collective as a participant, and I get the joy of co-hosting here. I'm a pastor from Northern California, and uh, I am here as a human individual who is happily and gratefully engaging in this conversation. But I'm also really encouraged and excited to engage with Shauna and Binley and Hank because they are influencers. They are church leaders. And Jesus Collective is a network of church leaders, both paid and not paid. And in the end, leadership is just influence. And we have an opportunity here to increase our influence by learning together. So, uh, without further ado, can we please, Shauna and Hank and Denley, would you mind giving us a tiny bit of context for your background and what you do as leaders? And then also, you have a lot of things you could be investing your time in right now. Would you mind, like, why did you choose to invest in this conversation? This is a a gift to uh, get to hear your voice like this. Why did you pick this conversation to invest in? Do you mind uh, introducing yourself and answering that right off the bat? 
Who goes first? I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I am Shauna Boren, and um, I am a pastor on staff at a church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, why am I here? Why am I investing here? Uh, Because I have been overwhelmingly taken aback and um, beautifully surprised by the amount of people who are who are who are awakening to the realities of our world and saying, not on my watch, not any longer, let's move forward together. What can we do? What can we learn? How can we be better? And so um, I was a part of Jesus Collective as a participant um, during the last several weeks, and that was beautiful and challenging. And I, um, I'm ready to, to help further the cause. Um, because there are many times in my life where I've, and I said this during Jesus Collective, where I've just been tired and I don't want to have conversations about this. I don't want people to continue to be blind. But ultimately, the reason why I'm, I'm stepping forward now more than ever is because Christ desires for us to all feel belonging mm-hmm. and to feel like we are a part. And he's called us to be reconciled, not only to him, but to one another. And that's part of the work that he did on the cross. And so I can't, um, in my tiredness, just slink away and lick my wounds and cry. I'm a woman of color. Um, I'm a, a kingdom believer. I'm a Jesus follower. And I love um, the brothers and sisters who are trying to go along this journey. And I want to help aid in that. So that's why I'm here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Can we pass it to Denley? Denley, will you mind? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Angela. <laughs> Oh, I was just being a good Canadian, just deferring. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, my name is Denley Washington McIntosh, and I always throw the middle name in because, as I don't know when else to use it, uh, it's part from obituary. So, uh, what can I say for myself as part being a uh, polite and Canadian? Uh, my ancestry is Jamaican uh, in the sense that I come from a a line of protesters in some sense the, if anyone knows about Jamaica that t- in terms of slavery, they were kind of the most uh, vocal of the slaves uh, that, among the Caribbean islands. But even in that, um, one of my cousins were uh, part of the whalers with Bob Marley, uh, Peter Tosh, if you're uh, reggae aficionados or fans. So uh, yeah, protest is kind of in the blood there, uh, I guess from that standpoint, uh, just, you know, I've been raised in the church for all my life. Mother took me to church. I think I was probably be a third generation Christian from that standpoint. Where I remember my, my grandmother being a Christian, my, my mother, and, and kind of taking on that heritage. But uh, really, I started to follow Jesus at 16. I uh, was in a different church, evangelical church that was rooted in Jamaica and, and immigrated uh, to Canada to launch off one of its branches. And one of the things I found very interesting in that church was that it was Caribbean, uh, predominantly black. I didn't really have a conscience of diversity per se growing up in the church, uh, although we were never opposed of it, but I never really saw it at that point. I think I became more conscious about race in a very demonstrable way when I got to university, I did my electrical engineering degree, uh, but I also noticed there was nobody that looked like me in engineering. Uh, so I joined... A networking group called National Society of Black Engineers to kind of 
focus on those. And the more I got into that, the more I saw the discrepancy, the more I saw the difference, especially when I went down to the U.S. and we saw there was a big emphasis of bringing marginalized or racialized professionals in engineering. And in Canada, I didn't see that. And it just kind of struck me in a, in a weird way. I think from there, it kind of awakened some things as I started to look at um, our churches, especially our church at the time, that uh, it wasn't so much that there were white people in the church. We just, we had black people. Now we wanted some whites and Asians and other kind of people from different demographics to be part of our church. So uh, when people talk about diversity in church, it's not just uh, white churches become diverse. It's also immigrant, immigrant based church to be more uh, diverse. But I understand when you start to look at the kingdom and growing up and that it was important for those places to be refuge uh, because of the, the discrimination and the exclusion, these churches were home. These immigrant-based churches that were very monolithic, homogenous were home. Uh, that was my experience growing up and ex- appreciating that. At the same time, we wanted to see us as first-generation Canadians, we are accustomed to be in a, in a multicultural environment. And so uh, that kind of wrestled me to kind of say, where has God taken us as, as a, as a person, as a family, and we eventually made a switch over sometime over to go to the meeting house. And then lo and behold, we find ourselves in the opposite strain of things of trying to make the meeting house more diverse. All this is to say that Jesus' prayer to me is the reason to be a part, to see uh, churches uh, open up their spaces for the differences in the different demographics because Jesus' prayer is about father may they be one as we are one and that's to me when we don't really express that not every church is for everyone i get that but when it's a clear barrier to uh, be able to integrate and fellowship with one another because of the color of our skin and our our background i feel that's a we mar our witnesses to, to the world because the church should be leading in that particular area so my work is in ministry to talk about these things have the hard conversation john knows that uh, we've had that internally at the meeting house i have it at work i work in the public sector and government to have those conversations and i just continue whoever i run into uh my family could tell you that this is usually top of mind so that's a little bit about me and i hope that i'm looking forward to the conversation thank you thank you for being here mm-hmm Hank, come on in. Yeah, so Denley used his full name, so I feel like I have to use my full name. Um, <laughs> my name is Henry Boima Johnson, but I go by Hank, I guess. Uh, my family and I live in central Pennsylvania. I serve at a, at a church here. Um, it's an intentionally multicultural church. Um, it's been work we've been doing 20, 25 years. I'm now serving as a senior pastor there, which in a lot of ways I feel like it's kind of the culmination of what God's trying to be teach me for my 37 years on this earth. Um, very much when I look at my life, I feel like God has really kind of fashioned my story to try and be a bridge builder. Um, my name's Henry Johnson. It doesn't sound very African. Uh, it's because part of my heritage are former slaves from 96 South Carolina got their freedom and they said, go back to Africa. And we say, you know what? That's actually not a bad idea, you know? Um, but my, my, my ancestor on my mom's side 
um, was a slave, earned his freedom, fought in the Civil War, tried Reconstruction, and be like, you know what, this America thing ain't working out. And he literally sold everything and got on a boat and was willing to go to the unknown. Um, nevertheless, I come from a family who then used a lot of that American privilege, if you will, to set up a society where they were at the top and everyone else was at the bottom. So part of my early work was, was trying to figure out how to bridge the gap even within my own country when my family represents a very much the, the power structure. Um, Civil War came in 1989. Before that, my family sh- suffered violence in 1980 as my mom's um, uncle was assassinated. Um, he was president of the country. Um, in 85, we started seeing persecution directly to my family. Um, so in many senses, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I'm a refugee. Um, and, and when I came to these shores, one of the fascinating things about America was I moved into a town with two black families and we were the, one of the black, black families. And I was joked that I, I had to become African-American because a lot of the privilege that I held as uh, we call ourselves American Liberians very much changed when I got to America because everyone's black. Right. Um, it didn't matter what kind of black you were, you were black. And, and some of the things I faced, um, for example, I came here without any testing. I was putting a learning support class classroom um and then in a weird way god worked there because again this bridge builder thing started early on like i was as a nine-year-old i learned that oh my goodness there's people society leaves behind and they're just left on their own and these are my first friends so bridge building was really a survival tactic at that stage um the next year we had um standardized tests and i placed in the top 20 of the school so i went from a learning support classroom to mentally gifted and i'm still waiting for my apology letter and they didn't come um, I moved to Philadelphia and went to a neighborhood where we were all black and I was super excited. I was like, yay, my people were all black. And they're like, oh no, but you're African. Um, so that was another bridge building thing. I went to, um, probably the best high school, um, maybe in the world, but certainly in this, um, North America in Philadelphia, good old central high school. And it was, it was very, very diverse. And it was the first times I, I got to see, if you ever read Todd Nahisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, he has this passage in there where he talks about the black diaspora and how he saw it on the commons of his college, all these different veins of black people. And, and so for me, that was beautiful because I grew up in a very Liberian setting, a very African-American setting one way in Southwest Philly. So I was exposed to that as central. Um, but I would say the entirety of my life has been these conversations. Um, I think another one of Jesus' prayers that really sticks out to me is the one that we know a lot, the Lord's Prayer, you know, and we all pray it as Christians on earth as it is in heaven, yet we are so disassociated with it because when we think of heaven, we maybe think about every nation, tribe, and tongue, but we kind of think about it how we do it here on earth, where it's like your denomination goes there, your denomination goes there. It's like Catholics over there, Southern Baptists, okay, further back, you know, Episcopalians move up a little bit, you know, Calvinists, eh, that's our predetermined spot for you, you know, Um, but but, but we forget, right? We forget that um, heaven will be this diverse place. We forget that Jesus really wants us to be not just dreaming of heaven, but working for it here. And if that prayer is on earth as it is in heaven, why are we not doing that work, right? Like, why are we not doing it? And, and I think so a lot of these conversations where I posit myself, where I plant myself is this is the call from Jesus. And it's a reminder to people that God's people have always been diverse. It's we, the Western church that has created race in this new dynamic. And if we who told people to separate by race, right? If you look at Genesis, 
Exodus, you know, one of my favorite passages is like, who left the, who left Egypt? And people are like, the Israelites, you know? But there's one little verse in there in Exodus 12 where it says, no, no, and everyone who believed. So even the Israelites, as you think about it, were a diverse people. When you look through the Old Testament, you see diversity all through. Um, my house should be a house of prayer for, for not just the Israelites, but for all nations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the church on Pentecost was, was Jews in the city of Jerusalem from all over the known world. We have always been created diverse by God, and it's we, the Western church, who's changed that. So I think that's part of our work in not only racial justice in these conversations, but actually getting back to our true heritage. And, and the last thing I'll say is if you identify as a Western Christian, or maybe you don't, but you're in the West and you're Christian, so you're Western Christian, um, I just want you to do some research and do some work to know that all of your good theology comes from Africa anyway. So I'll end with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be so much fun. I yeah. like I, we, the conversation has begun. We're, it, if you would just use it, just use your voice and share what you really think, Hank. I mean, <laughs> okay, so, I'm just trying. I'm trying my best, guys. One of the obstacles that we have is a language barrier. So we all are speaking English on this call, but uh, most vocabulary is defined for us, not by the definition, but by context clues. That That's how we learn, even from our earliest ages, how words fit more so than what words mean. So if you'd be game, I'd like to do a little thing right here at the beginning. I'd like to name five phrases that I'm hearing all over the place right now in these conversations. Would you please pick one, each of you pick one that you think holds the most misconceptions, and then would you provide a little bit of clarity into that phrase? And then I I want it to be a conversation, so ping off of each other's thoughts, and we'll just let these rabbit trails go. So here are the phrases. White supremacy, white privilege, social justice, racial reconciliation, and systemic racism. Any of those have any misconceptions in them? They're all very clear. (laughs) (laughs) Perfectly clear. I just like her for starting us off easy. Good job. (laughs) But Shauna's in here, so let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll just, um, not because I feel like this is the most misunderstood, but one that I feel in, in the conversations I've been having that I get the most pushback on um up front is white privilege and i feel like when people hear um that they have the benefit of white privilege almost immediately they want to like back it up and say nope absolutely not you don't know my story you don't know my life things weren't handed to me i had to work for everything i have and all of that may be true and that is not what we're saying by white privilege white privilege is just simply um the reality i'm sorry but the reality that if you are a certain skin tone, you naturally have the benefit that others don't have. There are systems in place that benefit you that don't benefit others. There are mechanisms in place where you get the benefit of the doubt that others with a little darker melanin don't. And so it's not an individualistic thing, which I think that's part of the issue is so many people are taking these things individually. Like, Mm. I don't believe that that way i don't think that way i don't i don't have privilege you know i don't come from a wealthy family instead of seeing it as a system as a whole situation so that would be the one that i personally have had to okay let's back up and start the conversation maybe before start so we can get maybe to to go down the path of this conversation 
I yeah. think with white privilege, it's helpful for people to understand that we all have privileges. Um, one of the ways I learned that was as a 13 year old in high school, um, I had a friend who, um, it was funny, right? When I started high school, I was like 4'11 and 90 pounds soaking wet, you know? So it's like, I didn't necessarily have to put myself in the friend zone with her. I did, you know, I'm just like, we will be friends. Cause as soon as the bigger guys see you, like, I, yeah, we're friends. Right. But it was great because we had this wonderful friendship. Right. And I remember, um, our high school shaped like an E, right. So as you have three corridors, four or five floors. And so we're in the main corridor in the middle of the school day with everyone around. And as we're coming out of class, I turn to go down my middle corridor and she freezes and I look and I see this abject look of terror on her face. And why? Because she looked ahead. And even though it was broad daylight in the middle of the school day, in the busiest hallway, she saw about 10, maybe 12 football players. Um, We'll go with 10 because the math is easy, right? Um, 10 football players on the corner and she froze. You know, and she was just, uh, I, at the time, I couldn't, I didn't have the language for it. You know, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that she did not feel comfortable walking by them. So I was like, you know what? I'll take the note to be late to class. I'm just going to walk with her, right? Now, flip that. You know, if it was me going and I saw 10 cheerleaders, right? I would do some quick math and be like, well, actually, you know, there's 10 of them. All I need is one out of 10 to think I'm cute. 10%, I can pull that off, right? And my posture and, and how I'll enter that is very different than what she went through. Um, most studies, as you know, if you, if you interview women from around the world, one thing that consistently comes up if you could do anything is I would run outside at night. I would go for a walk at night. Like that's number one on most of their list, right? So as a man, you have privilege, right? So that's just one example of privilege. So I think it's important for us when we say white privilege, it's not like Shauna said, demeaning the work that you've done is that there are systems in place to really benefit you. My wife's dad is a dairy farmer. They've been dairy farmers for about 400 years here in America. They, they work really hard. There's no way to say they don't work hard, right? Yet and still, he has in his family, and I guess in our family now, an original deed from William Penn when they parceled out Pennsylvania, right? Like literally, that's what we have. And as a true Anabaptist, it was in a basement underneath a bunch of boxes and we had to try to find it, right? Um, <laughs> but the point is, 400 years ago, when we were taking land from the natives who were already here, we parceled it out and says, you're white and you're a Christian, you get 400 acres or whatever it was, Right. I wasn't even afforded to that. And that's just the example from 400 years ago. So, so yeah, so it's understanding that we all have inherent privileges, but in the system that we live and work in, your white skin entitles you to or protects you from some of these things that are, are, are oppressing and, and keeping people of color down, right? Um, yeah, I'll pause there. Yeah, and, that, and Hank and Shana, uh Definitely good perspective and insight in that. Uh, if I want to add to the privilege comp- component, <clears throat> of what and kind of picked up a little bit about the protection. So uh, you may talk to someone who is white but poor and say, "Well, I don't have privilege because look at where I live. Right? It may not be affluent or opulent, but it's not all. It's not what privilege is. Not only what you get; it's what you don't get. Right? right? You don't get followed." Uh, you're not worried about police and the interaction with that. You're not being, there's not additional surveillance when you're at school uh, trying to do your work or like, if you're hanging around with your, your, your boys or your cronies. Uh, those are the things you're not being redlined. These are the elements that you don't get. Right. And so privilege is, is two prong is the, the benefits that are conferred and the things that you don't get. Uh, let me kind of speak about the benefits where people say, well, I didn't do the crimes 
thousands of years ago. You can't pin that on me. Right. I, I will ask the question. If you knew something was stolen and it was given to you, even though you didn't use it, but you started to use it, would you not think the police officers would now hold you responsible for using the thing that you knew was stolen, but you kept using it? But Mr. Officer, Madam Officer, I, I, I didn't steal it. I was just using it. And I knew it, but I just was using it. They'll still say, well, now you've become an accomplice at some level, right? And so the argument that I didn't do it, it's not me, is besides the point. Are you benefiting with granddaddy's wealth that he took from somebody else, right? From an indigenous or from somebody black burning down their towns or what have you. If you are benefiting in any way, now you are accountable to do something about it. That is the privilege. You have been privileged by inheriting what others have, have have taken or usurped from others. So just to kind of clarify, privilege is two prongs. What, uh, not only what you get, but what you don't get and what you've also inherited. There's the other element about systemic racism. What does that mean? It, it means that there is a culture within a, a, an organization that is favorable or more conducive for positive outcomes to a, to a racial set of people, right? So, for example, uh, you, you have a sieve, you pour water through it, some things are, if there's things in the water, they'd be sieved out, they'd be filtered out, the water passes through. Imagine people are like that fluid. Black people are the things that you sieve out. Brown people are the things that you sieve out. White people are what pass through. So systemic racism is essentially entering in those systems that acts as a filter or sieve and really pa- don't allow you to pass through. Don't allow you to benefit. And in fact, it actually rejects you. And so that's where some of that burden comes from there. I, so when people talk about systemic racism, it's that I don't see it around me. Yeah, they're in your policies, yeah. right? When someone says we, we're looking for pastors that have, uh, are, have been raised in suburbia, right? When you have a policy that's kind of written like that way, then you must ask the question, what are the odds of finding people who are black and brown in those neighborhoods? Well, it doesn't say overtly that we don't want black and brown people, but it's written that we want pastors in suburban parts of the, of the, of the country, right? Just by the way you phrase it, that now becomes an issue of systemic racism or institutional racism. Now you talk about supremacy, white supremacy. Well, white supremacy is not uncommon in the sense that every empire was always seemed to be the supreme empire, was always seen, seemed to be the supreme culture. Whether it be the Roman culture, whether it be the Greek culture, every culture raises itself to a, to a pedestal that says, look at us, become us. The difference in, the, in terms of Western supremacy or white supremacy in that regard is that we have now created rules and systems and feedback that will reinforce and maintain that. Democracy is probably one of the ways, too, because it's a way of protecting uh, some of the culture. Because if you didn't have democracy, you probably have anarchy. People will try to overthrow. So give a little bit of democracy. Give a little power away and change that will still keep the culture the way it is. Now, I'm not against democracy, but I'm just saying that, uh, that even within the thing that we think this is good, democracy, as positive as it is, 
it could be also a foil in maintaining the very culture that we're trying to uh, rail against. And so my point, when you talk about white supremacy, you're talking about culture that is raised above everyone else because there's no such thing as neutral culture, by the way. You're either A culture or you're B culture. There's no such thing as a neutral culture. So you're always moving towards a kind of culture. So within that context, me or Hank or Shauna or anyone else has our culture, we are forced to make decisions that am I going to get benefits by keeping my identity the way it is, or do I have to assimilate, which means take on the supreme culture in order to be passed through? And that's always a tension that marginalized, racialized people have to face. I, I get that there's always a culture. The Anabaptist has a culture. Our church has a culture. The difference is in the way that Jesus framed culture, especially the Jewish culture, culture is not meant to supplant other people. It's meant to serve people. And so when Jesus talked about in John chapter four to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he gives, he talks about the, uh, the benefit that the Jewish people had to the world, to the Samaritans, right? That the, the gospel, the salvation comes from them, but it's not meant to serve them. It's meant to serve the world. So every culture is not meant to usurp or press down, but they're meant to serve other people, in this case, other nations. And so my, I'm not denigrating white culture. I'm just saying to folks that white culture is not supreme because in the kingdom, God makes all people, Christ is in all, and, and he is part of all. And that's what we need to focus on. One thing I will say lastly, race is a very ambiguous term. I try to define race simply as what people say about me, what people say about our group. Race is about an other statement. How do I other you? How do I define your distinction from me, which is inferior? Ethnicity is about what we say about ourselves. Uh, what we, how we define our place. So I love God because God says, uh, I don't want you to racialize me. I want, I want you to hear my revelation, how I self-define who I am. And that's me and the image God bears. We want to self-define who we are. It's not meant to look down on others, but to say that this is the revelation of a community to another community. But when you try to impose your, your view of who we are, that becomes stifling and that becomes oppressive. And so ethnicity is who we define, how we define ourselves. Race is how others define us. And the two sometimes are used interchangeably, but I just want to, know, just want to clarify for those who come, sometimes get the two confused. Dude, yikes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say just really quickly, I think um, when you think about white supremacy, it's helpful to think of it as in our context and culture here in North America, especially it's the default. Right. Like, I think that's a helpful way to understand. Mm -hmm. it. It's just the default. You know, mm -hmm. when you think about uh, beauty standards, when you think about the history books, when you think about um, what is, quote unquote, normal, you know, um, it's the default. Right. And I think when you think about systemic racism, then it's the tool that's set in place to maintain the default. You know, so, for yeah. example, Denley was talking about suburbs. Right. Like, I love when people are like, oh, I hate these people getting government money. I was like, well, you didn't hate it when you got it. Like, literally, that's the creation of suburbs and Denley had mentioned I don't know much about Canada in this sense but in America though it was written into the leases and the, the, the suburbs when they're forming like no blacks allowed right um, so like if you live in a neighborhood that's near a city or if you live in a suburb area 
it's intentionally non-black. Like it was written in that we weren't allowed in there. Um, you can study redlining in the U.S., right? Um, and this systemic racism shows up in different places. It shows hey. up in the criminal justice system. Oh, hey, go ahead. What's, what's redlining? That's a term I've heard. Oh, uh, my bad. Say, yeah, say, yeah, like, yeah. So redlining shortly is, uh, write it down, Google it later, but redlining was this concept that the U.S. government literally passed on to local governments where they would set apart neighborhoods that were eligible for loans from the bank, that were eligible for um, tax benefits and stuff like that. And black people were literally um, excluded from these neighborhoods. So to this day in 2020 in America, if you were to take um, a map about people who are socioeconomically distressed and you were to put that on, on top of that map, a redlining map from the 60s, you will find that this was an intentional thing, right? Like we literally eliminated black people from certain neighborhoods. And, and to this day, one of the ways the wealth is passed down in the United States is through how housing, right? So for example, like most white people, when their parents die, they inherit something. Most black people, when your parents die, you owe, right? Um, and I learned this at 18. I had a friend who was saying that his mom had cancer. We're praying for him. We're at a summer camp and we're just trying to be there for him. And he was just like, yeah, if she dies, like I have to quit college and figure out how to pay for this funeral. And it hit me. They're like, oh my goodness, I'm in the same boat. And my friend who was white started crying and we're like, this ain't about you. Why are you crying? Like, we're the ones who are like in this situation. And he says, no, no, no. It just hit me that if my parents die, I'm a millionaire tomorrow. And we're like, oh, we do well picking friends. We Got to hang with you, you know. Um, but to this day in 2020, I think the last report that came out was in 2016, that the average white family in America, for a black family, the average black family to meet them, we would need 11 and a half times the wealth to meet their accrued wealth, right? Yeah. So redlining was just one of these policies policies that were put in place that limited it. I mean, I, had a fr- I graduated college in 2004. I had a friend, a white friend called me crying because his lease in central Pennsylvania, where I live, his lease still said no blacks allowed on it. And uh, the, the, the realtor wasn't showing it to him as like a social justice thing. It's like, oh man, look how crazy this is. Check out the lease. And my friend is like, literally, this is not funny. This is not crazy. This is insane, right? Like, I'm not buying this house, right? Until you take that out, right? Um, so yeah, so when, when we talk about white supremacy, that's the fault. But you need to realize that the systemic racism is the tool that leads some of these things. You know, anyone who's studies, um, criminology, for example, tells you that it's proximity and lack of opportunities. Yet in America, you know, white people do a crime, black people get punished way more, right? Um, so anyway, so the systemic racism is the tools that, that make stuff default, you know, your electric engineering program, like what do we do to not have black people? Like that's an intentional question that these systems did or didn't do, right? So yeah, so I just think when you think about systemic racism, you remember it's the tool and at least in America, um, this tool has changed over over time, you know, it's changed from slavery um, to reconstruction and that didn't quite work out. So we brought in Jim Crow and the KKK that didn't quite work out. So then we took away rights to even vote. You know what I mean? So the tool changes over time as well, but the default is white is right. You know, um, the default is white is normal. Right. Um, I, I love, I'll say this lastly, I have two daughters and I'm amazed by how many black dolls my daughters have. 
Like I'm amazed, right? Our friends and family are super awesome and conscious and stuff like that. But like, you know, the only disheartening part about that to me is I have a huge family. Um, on my mom's side alone, her dad was a polygamous Muslim chief. So I don't even do the math anymore. Like, I don't even know, like he had 10 wives, but he said he met my grandmother and fell in love. So there's a lot of counseling that we all need to wow. figure that part out. But at the end of the day, I have a lot of cousins and half first cousin and then that. So when I say I have a big family, it's not like, oh, dad had five kids or seven kids. It's like, no, 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 no. My grandmother, who he married, has 40 other siblings, too. So there's that, right? So I have a lot of cousins. And what, what pains me is when I see all these black dolls that my daughters have as default, I celebrate that. But I remember all these cousins I grew up with, none of them had more than one black doll. None of them. Right. So these girls were raised with the default beauty or the default personhood was a little black girl. And there's tons of research you can do about like even the black dolls. There's a lady who did a a really wonderful study. It's on YouTube um, about kids reactions to a black doll and a white doll. And it didn't matter if the kids were black or white. Generally speaking, it was positive with the white doll and negative with the black doll. Right. So, yeah. So I would say white supremacy is the default. You know, the heroes of the story are white, you know, um, and, and I would say systemic racism is the tool that's set in place in all these different avenues, housing, criminal justice, economics, that, 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 that maintain that default system. Yeah. Yeah. And just to piggyback on what Hank was saying, um, not the colorful history that he has. <laughs> yeah, beat that one, Shauna. <laughs> <laughs> default like literally um so i've done a lot of work for young adults and as they're you know graduating high school or trade school or college and they're trying to go out into the workforce literally if you google like how to look professional or professional hairstyles you will literally see images upon images of clean cut white uh, men and women and then on the converse if you google (laughs) unprofessional styles surprisingly and i can't even figure out why uh there are people of color with natural hair and um they it's it's just it's so embaked and it's just seen as normal it's normalized as hank was saying that is just the default and so almost from jump at so many different levels you're having to fight through all of that just to say no wait a second like normalize me as well (laughs) like i'm okay it's maddening and and you want um just to reinforce well, Sean said, from a church standpoint, you're talking about also the white Jesus, <laughs> the, white, the white Jesus that is the savior of the world. And don't get me wrong. I, I, I shared this with a few people that when people wanted to show their adoration for God, it comes out in all forms of expressions. But when art mimics life, but then when life mimics art, we got a problem. And what happened during those Renaissance periods where people were expressing their adoration it became now the historical Jesus mm-hmm. and that gets transplanted over and reinforced with racism. And now our churches are filled with idolatry in some sense, because they hold up the white Jesus and the mm-hmm. impact it has on, on racialized people who are part of that, maybe that congregation, it shows that not only you are inferior by our standard, but look, even God says you're inferior too, because who he looks like, right? Okay. Uh, we got to go down that path for a little bit for just a second. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I like, what is it that we are believing in our theology? And you just spoke to the white Jesus, but what is it that we've got baked into our theology that is mm-hmm. perpetuating this problem? Can we just go down there for a while? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, really, right? Um, You have to remember that um, slavery, for example, in America, um, the one thing that we change, or a couple things that we change is that, one, we allow that not just the woman who's enslaved, but her children to automatically be slaves. Um, One, we, we, we started... Um, separating families from the beginning, you know, so it's just like you became literally women, black women became mules, you know, like they were dehumanized, right? Um, So I think if you look at it sociologically, you have to understand that every empire oppresses, it's how they build power. Um, If you look at it economically, it's hard to find a billionaire who does it fair, you know, who doesn't take advantage of people. Um, And you have to understand that, like, if we are going to come into someone's house, steal it, and shove them off into the nether regions and call it reservations, right? And then we're going to build our economy on free labor. We're going to need to justify it, right? So even though we're not going to do the exegetical work, the hermeneutical work to say like, what did Paul mean by slaves? We're just going to be like, yo, you know what? King James says, slaves be obedient to your masters. We're going to run with that, right? And, And then so you have to understand that like, it's baked into our theology, and, but it's also baked into our personhood. Like, um, there's been tons of studies done. One of my favorite ones is in Stanford, right? You look at Stanford, brilliant people, very you know, open-minded, progressive. There was a basic study where they separated the students, and it was like they gave certain students power as uh, security guards, and automatically, like within, like, I think, one class, like just between how they set it up and what the situation was, the people with power started oppressing the people without power. Like, and it was like Stanford in the classroom right so i think it's it's also human right when we keep our eyes off of jesus we hurt one another if we're not able to see each other as humans we hurt one another um and i think that's what we have to understand about our history is that like we have used and we're not unique in this empires do this all the time um christians for example didn't fight in wars um and one of the mistakes my african brother saint augustine did was giving this theology of just war and now all of a sudden christians are fighting in wars right like we have to understand that we use our theology to justify where we end up and we use our theology historically to keep doing some of these things it's why you know a white pastor can say to me well i just want to keep jesus the center this this racial justice stuff you know like that 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 keeps our eyes off of jesus and it's like does it though like does it really keep our eyes off of jesus because there's more in my bible like i believe jesus is god right but there's more in my Bible about how you treat the stranger, the immigrant, the widows, the orphans, the oppressed, than there is about Jesus being God. Like, let that sink in for a second, right? To say that God is passionate about the oppressed and God takes the side of the weak and the oppressed is one of the biggest understatements in the world, right? So even our language, right? And I think that's the, that's the problem of us being educated in America is that some of these systems are so ingrained in us that we, the church, just mimic it. But I, I do think that we can move our, I mean, we see it all the time. We all pick and choose verses that we like, you know, we all pick and choose and build theologies of what's comfortable to us. So why would we not do it here, especially if I'm ending up in a privileged position and advantages, right? So yeah, so I think we, we, we one of the things about God is he's able to meet us where we're at. But I think one of the things I get frustrated about God is he's, he, he thinks it's okay for people to kind of like, just choose how to follow him. You know, like, I just wish, like, God was more like, you know, just lay it down, like, blah, 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 blah. And you can argue he tried that with the commandments. It didn't quite work out. I got you. I'm with you on that. But, but my point is that, like, people can consider themselves really good Christians mm-hmm. and not follow Jesus at all. 
right? And I think that's how we get here with our theology. Like, we can consider ourselves really good Christians, right? So, for example, I know a lot of really good Christians who would side with an immigration policy that doesn't side with God at all, right? And if this is the same God who has more to say on how you treat the immigrant and the stranger than his own son being God, like, isn't that a time for realignment, you know? But again, we make God in our own image. And that's the problem with some of this, is that we can build a theology that allows us to make God in our own image. And if we're making God in our own image, not only are we elevating ourselves to the top, but we're becoming what we worship, right? And we're worshiping ourselves or what we think is the best version of ourselves. Yeah. Well, and two, don't you guys think, and Denley, like, uh, if you feel like you benefit from what you're reading in the scripture, you're going to continue to perpetuate that. So as long as it holds, it keeps your status where you feel like it needs to be. Yeah. You're going to preach that and, and pass that along. Like, don't you I mean, that's a super oversimplification of it, but don't you guys think like at the heart, that's, that's part of at least the motivation. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to, um, Sean, to your point that, um, uh, I think production and capitalism has a big part to play in reading the scriptures and how people uh, view it. Uh, if you're a capitalist, you, you, you may see um, those uh, this idea of slaves and being your masters in light in that sort of view. Uh, I will say that one of the driving things that, that puts Jesus as a pedestal as sort of a white uh, European is the very fact that um, during that renaissance period and the enlightenment it did shift the focus away from the history of the early faith which was very much afro-asiatic if you ask many ministers who were the early church fathers they can probably name them but if you ask them culturally where they came from they probably wouldn't know no most people don't know that augustine saint augustine was african tertullian was african athanasius was african that Egypt in the early church was the heartbed uh, of the Christian movement. Very Afro-Asiatic. Uh, and so when you rob that history... You know, listen to the names. How could you not know? <laughs> <laughs> when you rob that history and don't talk about Christian history, only you start from Calvin and Luther and work your way, then guess what? You truncate yourself. And then you have the issue where a lot of my uh, black brothers and sisters who think Christianity is a white man's religion because that's all they hear. They hear that part, the later part of Christianity and not know the, the early part that how it was. A, yes, it was a Jewish faith earlier. And then it evolved to include many people from North Africa going from Ethiopia, uh, obviously the Ethiopian eunuch. You have Jesus in the gospel that talks about the queen of the South will come and judge you Pharisees. Who's the queen of the South? Well, that was probably most likely the uh, the, uh, the one that was with Solomon at the time, right? The Queen of Sheba. Not, and, and so you have these references of Africa that is sometimes denied. Even the maps that we have, we have Africa about this big and Europe this big. How is that possible? <laughs> well, the emphasis is on Europe. So those are little things of one of systemic racism, as Hank talked about, the tool to reinforce white supremacy when you make Europe ye big and Africa however small. On top of that, of course, you, you, you also have this, this notion of the scriptures seemingly justifying. So, for example, you look at Genesis chapter 9 when Noah seems to curse one of his grandsons, uh, Ham, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people use that as a racial, the racial lines where you got Ham, 
Shem and Japheth. Shem is the the progenitors of the Semitic people where Abraham eventually comes out. Uh, Japheth, some say that's the, the line of the Europeans. And some say Ham, uh, he, he's the, the ancestry of the, of the African people, at least from a biblical standpoint. So Canaan comes out of that. Now Canaan is supposed to be the one that's cursed. And so you have a lot of people, and you said, what's the significance of this? We had a lot of people who say black people are cursed and take that theology and create South Africa apartheid, mm-hmm. uh, create U.S. slavery, because they can point to that passage and say, guess what? Dark-skinned people are cursed, not knowing that that was actually fulfilled during Joshua's conquest. And even if you even want to go down that route, you would know that Jesus Christ breaks every curse when you're in him. But guess what? White slave owners in the U.S., they didn't want to baptize. So because if you baptize, you make, them, you make black people equal to whites. Oh, fascinating. So we use religion to... Uh, reinforce and justify and the scriptures in some cases can be as jesus said you make the word of god to be null it's, well it's i was gonna say real quick too uh, too like on the the theology point denley mm-hmm. i heard mm-hmm. somebody say recently uh some of us might need to um say push pause on our white theologians that we read all the time so like maybe we want to like take a break from our nt right addiction and start start reading James Cone, Howard Thurman, John Perkins. Start reading some others who are not N.T. Wright or not a white European descent uh, intellectual who's been forged in those furnaces. Yeah, I was going to say, um, um, I really appreciate Denley sharing about some of those church fathers, because I think that's something most people think our theology starts in the West, like Calvin, yay, you know? Um, and I, I think that one thing that humbles me and reminds me um, is that one, when God's son was under threat and being killed, who welcomed him in? It was Africa. It was us, guys. Really, it was us, right? Um, another thing that was new to me I learned in seminary is when Jesus says this great commission, right? You shall be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Most people don't realize that when that was written, the ends of the earth was talking about what? Guess what? Africa. That's what it was talking about. It wasn't just this like, and if you think about it, this is a directive, this is a commission. So it doesn't make sense to make it so wide and generic, right? Like you will be my witnesses in your city, in your state. So if you're in Canada, in your city, in your province, and then, you know, like everywhere, right? Like that's not a good directive, right? Like it was actually telling them this is where you need to go. And, and so even in that great commission, Jesus was calling them. Um, a lot of people who back then would require or would understand that ends of the earth, not as this arbitrary that we've made it, but like, no, 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 you will go into Africa, right? So yes, I think it's important for us to realize that like a lot of, it's not just Afro-Asiatic, it's that God always had a plan for all the people and God Mm -hmm. included all the people. And it's we who've kind of turned our back on that a little bit. And yeah, I will say, yeah, you have to check your bookshelf. Like I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you. Like if your quota in your bookshelf is like 90% white males, you got work to do, right? Um, One of the greatest things you can do about understanding the cross is reading James Cone, the cross and the lynching tree. Like a lot of us, we, for example, um, elevate the cross, you know, like we, we like to focus on Jesus's death and what it did for us. Again, how you use theology for your benefit than actually focusing on Jesus's life and how he did and how the whole gospel is not just he died, is that he left heaven and came, is that he showed us how to live, is that he went to the cross and died and he was raised. That's the full gospel. That's what they meant. But when you read cross in the lynching tree, what you realize is that, oh my gosh, Jesus was lynched, right? We as Americans, for example, knowing the history of lynch, we're like, oh, 
This was a public execution. This was done to quiet the, the little people. This was done to show the power of the state. And this was done to keep you in line, boy. Right? Jesus was lynched. And you need Cone to kind of help you be like, oh, now I feel a little conflicted about wearing a cross on my chest um, because would I wear a lynching rope around my chest, right? Like that's some of the work you got to do because you're like, that's what happens. And I think it's just this reminder of like, yeah, we have a lot of toxic theology out there, but you're going to keep doing the same thing if you're drinking from the same fount, right? So you got to expand and go to people who have different perspectives. Um, lastly, there's a guy named Andrew Walls who I love, um, an old Scottish guy who did a lot of his work in Africa. And he says, you have to understand it as like, we're all in the theater watching the Jesus show going on, right? And just like if you've ever been to a theater or a movie, where you sit is going to determine a lot of your experience, especially in the theater, how much you hear, what you see, what you don't see. And if we want the full picture of Jesus, we have to be intentional at getting the entire auditorium to speak in. Mm -hmm. So if I only have one kind of people speaking in, I'm missing the majority of who Jesus is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to bring this in. You want to, I don't want to cut you off though. You want to comment on that and then I'll bring it in. I was just saying that even in John's question, it it does assume a, a level of bias in the sense that uh, literacy is more potent than than theology that's coming from the oral, right? Because we're very bookish. We have to have books to get our theology. And that was one of the reasons that uh, a lot of black folks were never taken seriously because their theology wasn't penned. We didn't have the, the great writers of work because one, education, yeah, but two, also that we come from oral cultures. Remember, the, the gospel during Jesus' time was taken to be more credible when it was spoken than when it was written. The written part of the word was uh, probably really because of slavery for the, the Israelites. They had to find a way to, to encapsulate or encode the scriptures. But most of the time, the understanding of receiving the word of God was through the oral that was where, and even most cultures, the relevancy of truth came from the mouth. And so what I'm just saying that in terms of how do we appreciate theology that is spoken eloquently than always written on paper? And I think we do have a bias, and that's a Western bias, to, to see theology credible. If it's, if it's paper, it's gone through uh, publications, it's gone through uh, peer review. That is a Western model of authenticating truth, right? <laughs> I'm so glad you put that in. I'm so glad you put that aspect in there. Okay, so uh, those of us that are listening here, the vast majority of us are some kind of church leader, volunteer or paid. And as we hear that kind of mirror back on our theology, there is lots to apply there. Lots to apply. The question I want to narrow down to is, um, what do we do right now? So in light of whatever dreams, I'd love to hear both what you would like to see the church be like in five years. I'd like to hear that. And from the lens of what can we be doing right now? Shauna, would you take the first crack at that? That's maybe not kind, but uh, nothing like five-year dreams and goals and then back it up to like actionable things right now. It's a softball question. Sure. <laughs> Oh man, um, what the dream five years from now, you know, five years from now, I would love naively. I would love 
for there to not be a need for protests and not be a need for us to rally together to speak um, humanity to a group of people, that our church would truly be the reflection of God's kingdom, that we would truly be reconciled to him, reconciled to one another, and then living that out. And, and welcoming others in. And uh, I, I would love if the church were actually the place where people knew that they were safe to be who they are, to be fully who they are. Um, I would love if the church were the place where they knew that acceptance was there. And, and um, even they would have a voice and they would be put on equal footing and they would um, receive all the benefits. It feels like sometimes we we have to go out and search our social programs for those things and 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 we can't get that from the church when we absolutely should be getting that from the church so in in five years which isn't that like far down the road i would just i would love it if the church truly was the kingdom on earth doing what we are called to do right imaging jesus and loving others and and and, and shining that light so that they feel welcomed in and I think what can we do now, like I've said before, I hate speaking for any anyone other than myself, but I think it's important to listen and to believe and awareness is awesome. Um, there are some people who don't even want to be aware of what's happening, but it feels like the people we have here today are aware and they're wanting to move forward. And I think that's fantastic. Accepting what we're seeing, what we're hearing without all the whatabouts. Without, you know, without having to get the full picture, without just believing um, when your brothers and sisters of color are telling you their experiences and their histories and what, what they've gone through. And then um, moving together, not assuming that we have answers and, and, and as, as, as much education as we can get and as, as much as we can try to relate to one another, realizing that there's still so much more that we don't know because you can never fully enter into another's experience when they've had systemic things coming against them their entire life. And so I would think just, you know, listening, being aware, being humble, asking questions and um, believing people when they, when they say what they say, even if it pricks things that, that you feel to be true for yourself. So. Shauna, what would you say to somebody, uh, a, a church leader who says, yes, the vision that you just shared is beautiful and we want it in our church, but we don't know what we don't know. And yeah. so what, what are, if you were to coach them to three things or four things that they could do tomorrow to make sure they are that welcoming place because they don't know what they don't know, especially for people of color, what, what would that, what would you say for them to do? I mean, right now in our church, we've been telling people, you know, there's resources that you can that you can go and pull from and you can read, like, you know, find people who don't look like you, who don't have the same experience as you and, and just sit down and listen to their stories, listen to their questions, um, be willing to have your structures and your systems and your way of doing things rocked a little bit if you're really going to be welcoming in other people. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, those are just some of the, some of the beginning, like, look at who you're like, like we've been saying, look at who you're reading, look at who you're watching, look at who you're following on social media. And, and it's there, there are places out there for you to integrate yourselves and in other cultures and with people of color. It's, it's really not that difficult. Um, you just have to, to go looking for stuff. And, and, and then if you don't, if you can't, for whatever reason, find it, then, um, 
email me. <laughs> Shana, to your point about be prepared for your systems to be, because I, what I hear you saying um, implies that systematic changes in our churches is going to happen when the leaders in our organizations are being transformed around these conversations, either in their theology or by their listening or by their proximity and relationships to people who are not like them. So I love that implication because our churches will go where our leaders go. Um, you kind of quickly went by the idea of be prepared for your systems to be, you know, shaken a little bit. Can you speak a little bit? When I hear you say that, I, I go back to Denley's point uh, analogy of a sieve. When I think about our church's systems, I think we have some sieving happening, where when we scan the horizon for leaders, um, we're finding, I don't know what it is that's causing it, but we're only seeing white people come up on our radar. Uh, can you speak a little bit to the church leader who, when you say, be prepared for your systems to be rocked, what do you think that looks like? Oh my gosh, doesn't Hank want to say something? <laughs> sure, I'll jump in. I got your sisters. That's my sister. I got her, right? Um, yeah, so I think it's important for us to realize that like, so I know, so one of the default white things I'm running into is people are like, tell me what the resources are, right? And here's the thing. Honestly, you can Google search it. Like that, like, let's just be real, right? You can literally say, you, I mean, you, like, so for example, um, I have a cousin, distant cousin, I have a lot of them, as you know, um, who was protesting in Minnesota. And I got another text from a cousin who says, yo, we need a bail lawyer in Minneapolis, like right now, because he's in jail. And literally within five, 13 seconds, I counted it, right? I found seven different options for this kid who's in jail. Right. And that was pretty specified. That was literally free. Oh, I forgot that part. Pro bono um, bail lawyer for Minneapolis. Like I typed the whole thing into the Google whole thing. Right. Seven options. And they're able to get them out in an hour. Right. Like so. So. I can give you resources for your head. I can tell you what books to read, what, what to watch, what podcasts, who to follow. I can even tell you what organizations I think are doing good work that you can do your hands and feet. But here's the thing I'm finding that Christian leaders are missing and non-Christian leaders are missing. We're worried about the head because we're Western. We're worried about the hands because we're Western and your productivity matters. We're forgetting about the heart, right? And, and the biggest thing you can do is to actually have relationships with people who are different than you. Like, I can tell you what books to read. You can read Crossing a Lynching Tree. You can read Jamar Tisby. You can read Austin Tanning Brown. You can read all these great people. If you don't have relationships, it really doesn't matter or it's not going to push you as much because here's the thing about the human experience. We don't care until we really care. You know, one of my first cars that I really love was a blue Toyota. Like, I'm sure blue Toyotas existed before. I'm 100% sure. But like, what happens as soon as I got that blue Toyota? I start noticing every single blue Toyota on the road to this day. It's the same thing when it comes to racial justice, right? So I get it. That's a need. I want people who want to enter in. They want to have conversations. But like, who are the last 10 people you went to lunch with? Yeah. Who are the last 10 people you invited over your house? You know, if, if something broke down right now, like, who would you be able to call, right? I think the majority of North Americans cannot name more than maybe five, 10, certainly not, 25 people of color, or if you're, if you're a person of color, a white person that you know and trust and that truly love you. 
right? Like, can you name 15 people that if something broke down in their house, like you would default call right now, right? So I think that's the other thing that people are missing. Like, every, we're Western, right? We're like, what can I do? I can tell you what to do. What can I read? I can tell you what to read. But who do you know? <laughs> who are you willing to sit under? Who are you willing to bridge that gap with and actually have a relationship with? Because just like I didn't care about Blue Toyotas really till I had one, I don't know if you can really care about these issues of racial justice if you are not physically connected, right? And here's the best part. You do not have to do backflips if you believe in Jesus. You don't have to be like, yeah, I can't enter into their experience. I can't speak into it. According to Jesus, you're literally members of one another. Like You don't have to be like, oh, this kind of didn't happen to me. No, 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 no. We're one body. Just like when you physically stub your toe, and I use this all the time. When you stub your toe, the rest of your body doesn't go, well, my knee's great. You know, love my elbow, still bending. You know, like all of your focus goes to that hurt area and you focus on that thing. That's how we have to start thinking about each other. Because we're Western, we think about the body of Christ here but we don't think about it practically, right? And my friend who's a doctor said that, a medical doctor said, the beautiful thing about stubbing, you know, and swelling, I'm like, no, there's nothing beautiful about swelling. Toe, you know? And he's like, no, 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 no. That's the body's natural reaction to protect the hurt area. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. What if we, the body of Christ, operated that way, right? So what can you do as a church? I would say, first of all, self-examination like David, like, Lord, search me and know me, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. Two, I would say invest in not just, you know, what you need to do, but What's already going on in your neighborhood? Most people, especially here in America, just assume their neighborhood's the way it is because that's default. And they don't even know the diversity that's in their neighborhoods. Like, can you tell me the makeup of your local school district? Can you tell me the makeup of your demographic in your neighborhood or your town, right? Like, like if you were going to be a missionary to my great country of Liberia, your missions agency would have you to do so much demographic work that we as churches here aren't even willing to even begin to do, right? So I say you got to know who the people are around you. You got to learn that language of it. And then when we talk about the system stuff, we have to literally be willing to let go of stuff if it's a deterrent to people. Right. And I'm not talking about the un, like if someone's like, well, I don't think Jesus is God. I'm not asking you to let go of that. But I am asking you to let go of your CCM praise and worship every week. You know, I am asking you to, to stop making your leaders that you're putting up front only white men or only men in general. I am asking you to be intentional about saying, God, if we need to grow in this, humble us and teach us. Right. So there, there's got to be intentional steps that you're doing personally to grow, but then also that you're finding out about the community in and around you. And then the third one is when we talk about structures. Just think of it as the default. Don't look at it as like black people don't really like us or we don't really know. Look at it as what if we put in place that a black person will never come here? You know, like you might love that your church is only an hour. Like the black people who go to church, at least in America, that's not a norm. That's a white thing. Like in and out, that's a white thing. Like, like you, when you have a meeting, for example, you might think like, let's get down to brass taxes. Most older black folk I know when they walk into a meeting, they want to greet everyone and they want to be greeted. Like, and if you're in the middle, if you're on item five of the agenda and they walk in a little bit late, cause you know, time is relative in certain cultures, you know, like if they walk in and you're on item five, they don't want you to be like, let's move on to six. They want you to stop and say, Hey Hank, how's it going? Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Like we have to get to some of these things and realize that 
the default is still our whiteness and the default is holding on to what we think is right rather than seeing the person right and and that's a a long-term thing that you need to be doing again i'm not putting against resources um shauna said you can email her feel free to do that you know like she'll give you all the resources you need right if you want i can probably share some too but you can't worry about the head. You can't worry about mm-hmm. the hands and forget the heart. And yeah. the heart is yeah. relationships. Yeah, and I think I it starts there, right? Yeah. I think it starts with the yeah. heart. And every individual leader has to look within themselves and say, where am I in this? Where? What are my biases? And the Lord will reveal them to you. What are your natural inclinations, your natural mm-hmm. reactions when you see something or hear something that doesn't quite jive with what you feel you know to be true. And if yeah. you can't like address that, then all of the resources and the podcasts and the documentaries, I mean, that'll be that, great information, yeah. but it won't transform yeah. anything and it won't move you to action. I, I'll probably just add that um, in terms of that vision piece, I think what would be really good to see is uh, just like there's student exchange programs, I think there should be church exchange programs that congregations swap and take time just to be in the other church's experience. That would be beautiful to see where you have churches go into the suburban areas and learn life there, experience there, worship there, however that looks like. And churches in the suburb come into the, to the city, the higher priority neighborhoods, what it means to support uh, people within those areas. I also think in terms of the, the conversation of reparations, that um, that's happening in, in obviously in the U.S. less in Canada, but we, we're still having this conversation. Uh, churches who have means, if you are now stricken or convicted that you have a role to play, this is how you can you can you be able to work with other churches who are doing the work. I know that Tony Evans had a program down in in Dallas that was kind of like that. And I think if you're talking about, well, we don't want to give these money away for people who don't deserve it, you know, you hear that argument. Well, if churches are really moved about restitution and and bringing things into wholeness, I think that's a very important conversation to have. And you'll see it in the Old Testament, the idea of restoring, bringing things to whole. And you also see what I remember in Luke 19 with when Zacchaeus stole things from the people and he said, Jesus, I'm going to make amends. I'm going to make a tone. I'm going to give these things back to the people. And Jesus says, go ahead, do that very thing. So if churches can be able to do that, that'd be a very, very, be a really good thing in terms of the near. I think quickly pastors swap your, your pulpits, get people of different voices quite easily. Look at your children program. Are the white Jesus populated everywhere? Well, Make emphasis to take those things out. Worship, maybe study Kirk Franklin. Uh, Frank Franklin is wonderful at blending different genres together. And now you think about how do we make our voices inclusive in terms of worship. Christian rock, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. But if your congregation is predominantly diverse, do they really want to listen to Christian rock, right? So those are the things that you have to be able to be mindful of. And even the food that you have, right? Bread, sandwiches for, for lunchtime, well, Black folks don't eat that. Other colored folks, they like food that's more hearty and rich. So those are really concrete things that you guys can do immediately, I think. That is awesome. 
All right. Uh, John? Just real quick, uh, Andrew, I forgot to say this part. Like when we talk about dreams, I think it's important for us to center it on God, right? Like I think a lot of times we, we make it so individual, like, Hank, what is your dream for the church? Like, no, 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 no. God had this dream of a multicultural kingdom and he gave it to Isaiah and Jeremiah stole it too, right? And then he gave it to John and we call it the revelation, right? And that dream is not just what Jesus prayed, but it's all nations of the earth streaming to it. And one of the... <laughs> maybe two reasons. I'll say Jesus, you know, maybe my wife, you know, but the third reason why I think I'm still in America as a black man, I'm feeling my great grandfather who was just like, I gotta get out of here. Right. But one of the reasons I'm still here is because God has really put it on my heart that like, we're uniquely positioned to actually be a multicultural kingdom. If I went back to Monrovia, you guys coming with me would be the diversity. You know, but yet where I am, even in central Pennsylvania, like our church has people from 50, I think, different nations. Right. Like we have all these flags around our sanctuary for where people have lived and worked. Right. So I think that when we think about the dream, it can't just be about our individual um, charismatic leaders. It has to be like, what did God tell Isaiah and Jeremiah? Oh, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, but all the nations should stream to it. What did Jesus and God reveal to John in the revelation? Oh, it should be a nation of every tribe, every tongue, right? So I think that's the unifying vision that we have to plant that in God. So when I love when people say like, oh, this diversity thing is really new. I'm like, yeah, it's so new. Starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation, right? Like you got work to do. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question for you guys because we want we need to transition to yeah. people giving people an opportunity to ask questions yeah. so people can uh, friends welcome to put your questions in the chat and then we'll highlight those questions and give you a chance to ask mm-hmm. our friends directly um, so Paul kiss is a friend of ours on this mm-hmm. um, chat and Paul had a question for you guys so I'd love to have Paul just turn your video on and ask uh, the question to our friends, Paul, if you're still here. There you are. I'm still here. Great. Uh, thank you so much to uh, all of you for putting today on. Uh, I have grown up in the Brethren in Christ Church, um, strong Anabaptist roots. Um, and one of the things I've noticed um, from what I can see mostly is the majority of Anabaptism uh, seems to be attractive to white people. And I don't see it taking a hold in a lot of ethnic minority groups like Pentecostalism does. And I'm just wondering if you have uh, any answers to why that might be. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Paul, for that that question. Uh, So one thing that is very unique with the Pentecostal experience, having friends in the Pentecostal church and actually doing research on that, it's the only, and I don't like to use the word denomination. I like to use tribe of the faith because that seems to be a little more biblical. The, the Pentecostal movement was actually a movement specifically to be anti-racist. When William Seymour started the Pentecostal movement of 1906 in Los Angeles, the focus of that culture was to bring minorities together. In fact, because Jim Crow didn't reach over to California in the early 20th century, it created an opportunity for them to say, you know what, the reason that America is struggling, the reason that uh, we're not get, we're not seeing that God's kingdom being ushered in was the lack of unity within the church, the racism, and this idea of this sort of fundamentalist view of looking at scripture. And so the movement of Pentecostalism is very unique in the sense that it was actually the only movement that specifically targeted of bringing uh, different races and making genders equal. And so I think that's the, that's the difference in terms of the narrative. That's why it's so popular today, because the idea of inviting every culture together. 
Well, and I'll say, though, like when people ask a lot of times, you know, what has God been doing like with this diversity thing? Um, one, he has in his scripture that he thinks everyone's made in the image of God. We ignored that, right? Um, after we said slavery was a bad thing, like the creation of quote-unquote black church wasn't because black people were just like, you hated and oppressed and killed and raped me, so I want to worship by myself. No, they were just like, okay, now we're all Christians and worship together. And they're like, well, can you sit in the back? Actually, can you go upstairs? You know, actually, why don't you guys just worship on your own, right? Like, that was an intentional thing. Um, we talked about, or Dan, uh, just shared about, um, Danley just shared about the, the Azusa Pacific stuff. The thing you have to remember about Azusa, not only was that how it was founded, but that's how it broke down. So even the Pentecostals today are still not diverse. Like, you might get diverse people, but you have a black yeah. Pentecostal, a Latinx Pentecostal. And part of the reason is one of the guys who was in that movement was the name Parham, and William Seymour yeah. was the black guy. And yeah, so the yeah, first yeah. people were saying, man, the color line doesn't exist here. And then, like, because of our racism, we literally put the color line in place and it almost destroyed me. I'm brethren in Christ. So I will say that I can speak a little bit into the brethren in Christ on this, right? Like, I think that one of the unknown stories of the brethren in Christ is that, yeah, they were farmers, but they were way more progressive on race relations than we are today as brethren in Christ. Like a hundred years ago, they were in Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, like Detroit, Chicago. And now when I talk to Brethren in Christ people, they're terrified of the city. And I'm like, yo, if the farmers were willing to go, like, why aren't you? What does that say? But I will also say this is where we talk about structures and systems. It is not that our theology isn't open to minority people like you if you're truly an anabaptist you don't have to convince minority people who have a christian background that like jesus is king you don't have to convince them that we should look through jesus you don't have to convince them that god and country is a bad thing right you don't have to convince us that like oh america is an empire like that's not a new thing to us right but but what we do have to do is look at our systems and from what i know about some of the brethren in christ and if you go through some of the history luke Kiefer is talking about this in the late 80s into the 90s and he yeah. says we have set up a system of planting churches that literally eliminates people of color, right? And what he meant by that was like, we had the system where it's like, we'll give you X amount of money and then cut it in half and then cut it in half and then you're up. Because we're coming from a capitalist mindset of like, we need you to be profitable, right? We need you to break even instead of we need you to invest in this community, right? So Mm. it's not that our theology isn't open to people of color, it's that our systems are not and our intentionality are not about the leaders we're hiring either. If If I can just add on to that, uh, I think the evangelistic trust thrust is very important because I think the Anabaptists and Bruxy Kavier, our pastor at the meeting I was talking about, it was they weren't really centered on the evangelistic. They were pretty much, uh, you know, that's it. that's what people are doing in the world. We'll just kind of grow and, and yes. cultivate our community. So there's yeah. a se- there is a sense of isolationism, which is always part of any type of spiritual movement. There are some of those who said they want to evangelize. Some of them say they want to be isolationist and and withdraw away. I will say the Pentecostal movement, it did splinter because white Pentecostals had the issue of black leadership. And that was a, a strong, because even though William Seymour was in charge, they didn't have a model of black leadership. And because of that, white Pentecostal said, I love your movement, but I don't want you in charge. And so you have the Assemblies of God, uh, you have the, uh, you have the right. Pentecostal, yeah. all those denominations were, there's racial tension within that, which was not the initial reason for it being. Okay, this is really helpful and i want to hear from um shauna's experience and so uh josh had a great question for shauna and i would love for josh to ask that and and this may have to be our wrap-up question because of uh of wanting to honor the time i know it'll go so fast 
Hey guys. Uh, so Sean, a question for you. Uh, recently I've been doing some more, more reading and learning and studying about various forms of racism because it's very deep and crazy and wide. And specifically, um, I've stumbled upon gendered racism. And so I wanted to ask you specifically as a woman of color, what unique challenges uh, do you face that perhaps our, our brothers of color don't? Thanks, Josh. Well, I would say I'm, I, I feel blessed to be a part of the church I'm a part of because we definitely, <laughs> if you look at our staff and you look at our leadership, we believe uh, that women have a voice. <laughs> so thank you for that. It, it's, but I know that's not always the case. And so I think um, anytime you're in a type of a minority group, like you, you have things stacked against you and you almost have to prove yourself a little more. Um, than your white counterpart. So the race is there. And then if you're a woman, sometimes you have to prove yourself a little more than your male counterpart. And so, um, <laughs> and so I think that um, my experience has been um, that prior to my church here, where I, like I said, they, they, they value women in leadership and the, and the voice of women, I feel like sometimes there is an assumption that we can't educate others. We can't educate uh, men. We don't have enough theology to to move things along. That can be that can be a thing. Um, I also think that many times there's an assumption that we are gifted in a specific way because we are women. So put them over children or over missionaries or um, so but don't give them this kind of a voice. And so if, if, uh, if you're a part of a system that does that, then that's really limiting and unhealthy. I know I don't even have to be the one to speak that I know Angela can as well. Um, so what would be Shauna some, what would be some specific, uh, as you, as a person of color, female person of color, when you combine the two, have you experienced, uh, what you felt like discrimination or some uh, systemic racism based on you being a person of color, female person of color? Yeah. Well, for me, it's, it's maybe a little different because I'm biracial. And so a lot of times there's that question of, first of all, what, it, what is she? And then, so there's this, um, a feeling of not knowing quite if I'm on safe footing when I encounter people. Um, and so it's like, uh, you know, that question is there, you know, that there's a wondering of what, what are you, what is she? And then, um, there's either based upon the answer I give them, which is what, you know, I'm half black, half white, whatever. So there's either a, um, oh, okay, an acceptance and entering in, or there's a, oh, you know, and, and a withdrawal. So just from the racial standpoint, there is that, but then it can move quickly into objectivity. So, um, and I don't know if we want to get into, into all of that here, but as a woman of color, um, first I have to know that or experience that acceptance when I'm encountering people. And then sometimes that acceptance is based upon their perceptions of me. And so if they like the way I speak or they like the way I look, or they like what I have to say, then I'm accepted. But if not, then it's, um, then I'm pushed away. I'm trying to be very general and not get too deep in the weeds with some of those experiences. Sure. 
I heard it uh, as I listened to you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I heard you talk about what we could be doing now to get the church that we want in five years, a common theme that I heard was believability. And I think that is a place where sexism and racism come they are you're in the crosshairs on both sides because both gender and race often have defined whether or not what we have to say is validated and so i heard that as she was sharing here's what we could be doing we could believe people we could listen Mm -hmm. we could get next to them and actually not question all of the but what about these exceptions to the rules like believability i think is one of those common absolutely between racism and sexism Absolutely. And and I think so many times as a woman and as a woman of color, you are so used to being discounted that you almost sometimes don't even realize it. You're just mm-hmm. so used to moving about in the world in a way in which you can survive and thrive just a little bit as long as much as you're allowed to, that when you get discounted, it's just like, oh, okay, that's well, we'll go down this path. It's just so common, which is sad, right? Like when we get discounted, it should be when we're not believed, it should be a stop in your tracks moment to say, absolutely not. This is not okay. This is not right. You are not hearing me. You're not listening. You're not believing. And you are discounting me, my humanity, my gender, but we're so used to it that we just go, all right. Well, maybe somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I think, and Shauna, you hit the nail on the head. The intersectionality is part of the conversation that women of color, black women, are at the bottom pole within culture. Yeah. And and so the issue with equal pay is not issue of just simply gender. The issue of equal pay is race and gender because white women, at least in Canada, make more than every other culture, right? But black women. In Canada, they make, uh, I would think, about 60 cents to the dollar. I think when white women are, I think, 85 or 90 cents to the dollar. There's a significant gap, and it's not just based on gender, it's based on race. And that is significant because in the boardroom, if you want to do something concrete, make ensure that every voice is able to speak. Give that opportunity because there's a tendency to, when black women speak, they are not taken seriously until Bob says it, until Bill says it, until Jim says it. Right. And then it's like, I said the same thing. No, but it had to come from the messenger. So they exactly. see, they, become, they conflate the messenger with the message. Yeah. And, and to tap into that a little bit more, and I'm trying to watch our time, like not only can we say something just as intellectual, just as valid, just as factual, but if we say it with too much passion, if we have mm. too much energy, mm-hmm. then it's, oh, she's an angry right. And, and so, again, you get discounted. And so we have to think through all of the rigmaroles of how am I looking? How am I presenting myself? What is my tone? What is the volume? There are all of things. Sounds exhausting. It is. Exhausting. It, is. it sounds exhausting. Very, very. No wonder you're tired. Yeah. <laughs> We're tired before we get the meeting. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Mm-hmm. Denley, you mentioned a term that uh, people may not be familiar with, intersectionality. Yeah. Like, we don't we don't have uh, time yeah for that. i'll do it I'll, yeah. I'll give you a cole's nose version essentially yeah. it's our it's identities that across so race is seen as to be an identity what you how you reflect how you see yourself within the culture and gender likewise uh there's other intersectionalities i should say uh but this intersectionality uh is very pivotal because it actually frames the way that black women are actually are viewed in church and the view in in the corporate world. Black men, there's intersectionality with us too. We're seen as threats. The fact that I'm growing a beard is maybe I may shave it when I get to work because 
it now shows I'm not as warm. I'm not as inviting. So I cut my hair a little. I get rid of the beard because that intersectionality uh, creates threats in people's minds. And so intersectionality is a very big thing. So you can't split gender from race. Uh, I know the lens is on race, but um, you have to keep everything holistically. And so those are the issues. Angry black women, that's the, that's the stereotype. The threatening black man. And of course, what happened to Floyd was the threatening black man. But he was six six, right? But what if I grew my beard? That may be the the, the counter to my lack of height. Oh man, uh, folks, this has been great. I I think we need to come back and talk about racial reconciliation. Like, what is that? What does that mean? How do how do we do it if we wanted to do it? Of course, we want to do it. How do we do it? So um, maybe maybe would you come back for a part two sometime soon? <laughs> Put him on the spot. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't have to answer that right now. But uh, this is. And we're in really... Corona. My schedule's open. Just there you go, know. man. You know, we got we got the um, Rona, Rona. The Rona's keeping us at home. So this has been really Let's good. See what we can do. Yeah, really I, we just want to thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I, hope they, I hope everyone enjoyed it. I, and it seems like there was a lot of good questions going on, on the, in the chat. Yeah, for sure. I I would love uh, to invite. My colleague, Matt Miles, who's also giving point leadership to Jesus Collective. Uh, Matt's going to bring some greetings, and then we would love to, yeah, Matt can speak, but we'd love to hang out afterwards if you uh, have some time to hang around. Yeah, hey, friends. Uh, I would just love to reiterate John's ending of thank you, especially to the people that participated in the conversation, but you for joining in, too. Um, but Denley and Hank and Shauna, you, you spoke with a mix of passion and truth but with so much love and that was so evident it's just so apparent that your hearts are for the church to look more like jesus and for the world to see that church uh, and to see his love so thank you honestly so much on behalf of all of jesus collective and i mean we all know none of these conversations are the be all and end all that are going to just solve things overnight but as was referenced in the discussion today this is really about heart change and each of these conversations is an opportunity for our hearts to just keep changing a little bit and, you know, John, you just mentioned reconciliation. That's at the core of Jesus' ministry. When we say we're a Jesus-centered network, he's all about reconciliation. Um, and this just contributes to that process even just a little bit. So we're deeply grateful to know people like you and to everyone who joined in and contributed to the conversation. For those who are joining by way of the podcast, we're glad you listened in. We'd love if you checked out other episodes on the Jesus Collective podcast. Uh, we're going to sign off now. If you're here live, there's no pressure to hang around, but... We'd love to just create a few minutes if you're new or you're looking for a little bit more information about Jesus Collective or to meet us relationally. We love meeting new people, and we're going to hang around for five or ten minutes, and you are welcome to join us. But to everyone else, take care, and we hope to see you around Jesus Collective soon. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check in at JesusCollective.com where you can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find info about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff. Or you can find us on social media too. And listening is such an important part of our journey, especially in these early days. So you can feel free to reach out to us with ideas and feedback and suggestions. You can always connect with us by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you.